0: McDermott is an internationally best-selling author whose books have sold over 19 million copies. Her multi-award winning series, Wire in the Blood, featuring clinical psychologist Tony Hill and senior detective Carol Jordan, has been adapted for TV and radio. But today I'm talking to Val McDermott about the seventh book in the Karen Peary series of crime thrillers, Past Lying. Val McDermott, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast.
1: Pleasure to be here.
0: Before we talk about Karen Peary and her role in this book, Let's talk about chess, the gambit, the scotch game, and the scotch gambit. What are they? And how do they become part of the story in past lying?
1: A gambit, of course, is a thing in chess, a set of moves that you make, a sort of preordained set of moves that uh, produce a certain outcome. And the scotch gambit, I'm not a chess player, so all of this is a bit strange to me, but the scotch gambit apparently is one that uh, places a challenge at the beginning of the game that you have to get right into or uh, it becomes a very dangerous state of play for for you at the hands of your opponent. And the two guys at the heart of this book uh, played chess together. They were quite combative and and competitive in their chess playing. So it was kind of, I thought it was an interesting place to start, an interesting idea to start.
0: We're familiar with L.A. noir. Here in Australia we have outback noir or desert noir. But what is tartan noir?
1: Well, I think uh, it's it's fair to say that, that there's a certain distinctive Scottish voice and certain Scottish preoccupations. Uh, we come from a, a long line of of, sort of strict Presbyterianism uh, and a concern with the dark side, the evil side of, of human nature. And uh, that sort of sense of, of being the, the two opposing forces held in balance, if you like, the good and the evil, uh, and and that sort of led has led to a tradition of people writing about doppelgangers, people who who kind of come face to face with their opposites, if you like, or their their opponent who is is uh, equally balanced against them, and it runs through uh, Scottish fiction generally, the Scottish literature generally, and so I think Scottish crime fiction has a a real concern with the psychological, with the the the, the, the oppositional nature of of um, people's lives. And so that's one thing that sets it apart, that darkness, that dark night of the soul, that concern with uh, how you how you combat someone who is hell-bent on destruction. And the other thing that uh, I think we have in common is we have a sense of humour. Uh, and the Scottish sense of humour is as black as night. Uh, it's not a good funeral unless you've had a good laugh at some point. Uh, we're, we're very good at uh, taking the darkest situations and finding something truly tasteless and funny in them.
0: DCI Karen Peary is going through what almost the entire planet went through just a few years ago, a COVID-19 induced lockdown. But something interrupts the boredom and that comes in the form of a phone call from the National Library with a very interesting link to a dead author.
1: The story begins during lockdown, as you say, and it happens that one of her junior officers uh, has, over the years, Karen has set him about finding Things in the National Library, digging up archives and finding records, has got to know one of the librarians who has recently moved to the archive section. And she's been archiving a set of papers that have come from a dead crime writer, a guy who died quite suddenly, relatively recently. And amongst these papers, she's uncovered a manuscript, or a partial manuscript, that seems to her to have surprisingly coincidental connections to the disappearance of, of a young woman uh, a, a year before. Uh, she'd come across this before lockdown started, and it's been preying on her mind ever since, so she decided she'd better phone up Jason and, and say, do you think there's anything in this, Jason? Uh, and Jason, who is probably as bored as anybody else in lockdown, says, I'll speak to the boss, see what the boss says. And the boss thinks, well, it's worth pursuing, it. at the very least it'll keep us occupied or help us a sort of training exercise. And off they go.
0: But how do you investigate a murder when you're only allowed out for one hour a day?
1: It's a very good question, uh, and you will really have to read the book to find out. Um, there's a lot of stuff that can be done online, obviously, uh, and there's there's stuff that uh, as as a as a police detective working a case in the real in the real time, you are allowed to travel further than than you would normally be allowed to travel. And um, the interview situations happen under social distancing rules. People are masked, which is also quite problematic for police officers trying to uncover what people know and what they don't know. If all you can see is, is their eyes, uh, I think it's sometimes quite difficult to tell when someone's uh, telling you the truth or trying to pull the wool over your eyes or just flat out lying.
0: Past lying is a story within a story, and you referred to the manuscript, and that's Jake Stein's manuscript for a book called *The Vanishing of Laurel Oliver*. A forensic examination of an author's manuscript is an unusual way to pursue a crime investigation, but can it be trusted to lead the team and the reader in the right direction?
1: Absolutely not, because I wrote this book. There's all sorts of all sorts of red herrings and and uh, uh, possibilities that vanish into the dust. Um, so it's it was an opportunity, I suppose, for me to have a little bit of fun with um with the whole process of writing and the whole process of how we put a story together and how it reflects reality. Um, but in this particular instance, it's the, the crossover, possible crossover with the real case that sets everybody uh sets everybody's antennae twitching. Is this really uh something that could map onto reality? And which came first indeed, the vanishing or the manuscript? because none of these things are clear.
0: There's one thing these parallel murders have in common, and that's a thing called drop-fall seizures. Why are drop-fall seizures important to this investigation?
1: I needed there to be something that uh, was a definite link beyond just the possibilities of coincidence. Um, Drop-fall seizures are a form of epilepsy. Uh, They're not a very common form of epilepsy, and so it seemed to me that this was something I could reasonably introduce to the case That would be a marker, I suppose, that this is not just purely coincidental, purely chance, that there is a connection in here somewhere.
0: I want to touch for a moment on the relationships under the circumstances of COVID 19. And you spoke before about the dark and the light. And I think this kind of reflects possibly on some of the relationships in this book. And now it seems to me if you want to complicate a relationship, put the whole place in lockdown and watch it unravel. And that's what happens to Karen and Hamish?
1: Yes, uh, they're separated during lockdown because Hamish has to go back to his croft in the highlands to tend the animals and and generally look after his business there. And his business in Edinburgh, which is a chain of coffee shops, is of course inactive during the lockdown. So Karen's in Edinburgh and Hamish is in in the highlands. Um, And uh, it's, it's clear that there maybe isn't quite as much connective tissue between them as they had hoped there was. Uh, It's an interesting time, I think. uh, Relationships went one of two ways, I think, in lockdown. They either got stronger and closer and people almost reveled in having that time of closeness and intimacy with the person they love, or they went in the other direction and people realised that, in fact, they didn't have anything in common at all with the person they were in a relationship with. Um, I have a friend who's a a divorce lawyer who says she'd never been busier than she was during lockdown, with people discovering that they would, they would rather lock themselves in the toilet for the day than spend another minute with the person they were married to.
0: Interesting way to spend a couple of years locked in the toilet. You'd need a good book.
1: <laughs> a lot of good books, I think.
0: <laughs> Let's get back to the story. Lara Hardy who has been murdered in real life. Now, it's a unique reading experience. Um, We're reading along with Karen and Daisy, the two detectives charged with investigating this, but one's fictional and one's real.
1: I think I'm just trying to give the reader the sense of being uh, in the the pocket of the detective, if you like. Um, I started my career, my second series that I wrote featured a private eye, and one of the things that was interesting about writing that kind of fiction was the reader knows everything at the same time as the detective uh, and for the writer, the challenge is to not hold things back, in other words, to not deliberately keep things from the reader, but to hand them over in such a way that they don't necessarily notice their significance. And I think that was quite good training for me for this book, where I'm writing as it were, the, the the parallel story uh, as as you're finding stuff out in the real story and balancing the two against each other. Uh, it sometimes suggests routes that Karen should go down investigatively, and sometimes it suggests dead ends that Karen ends up going down investigatively, and ultimately she's got to figure out which is which, and at the same time as the reader has to f- figure that out. I hope, and I hope there are times when the reader goes, "Oh no, I really thought that was going somewhere," or they think, "I think she's wrong here. I think it's this." It's about uh, uh, for me. It's about this at this point in 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 a novel. It's about entertainment. It's about drawing the reader in. Um, I mean, the crime novel is has become, I think, a novel about serious issues and serious things, and we don't treat murder as a parlor game anymore. But I think that doesn't preclude the, the intellectual game for the reader of trying to figure out what's going on.
0: There's a subplot too, and it's a long-running subplot, I suppose. Karen Perry has a history of interaction with the community of Syrian refugees, and as if Karen's life isn't complicated enough. She takes a call from Miran. What does Miran want of Karen Peary?
1: Miran wants Karen's help uh, to, uh, I suppose, effectively make safe someone who has escaped from Syria and who has a price on his head. Uh, Miran uh, and his his family run a, a cafe, a social enterprise in Edinburgh, that Karen helped them set up when she first made the acquaintance of the Syrians, I think two or three books back. On her night walks, she she met them, having a little barbecue—not a barbecue, a little brazier under the moonlight bridge, as it were, uh, and she she got to know them and re- understood the, the difficulties they were suffering from and, and helped them set the business up. She's become pals with Miran over the years and she drinks her coffee in the cafe and they won't let her pay for it. And so she always puts money in the charity box. It's that sort of slightly odd relationship. So Miran doesn't know anybody else really who has a, any kind of figure of authority in the Scottish community. So when he has a problem, he goes to Karen for help. And... Um, because Karen actually thinks these these people are are the good guys. They're the ones who have been uh, made victims. And Karen has a very strong sense of wanting to to help victims, to to do what she can to make things right. And so she becomes involved with uh, this business of trying to make safe this guy who has managed to escape from Syria.
0: There's a very powerful humanitarian aspect to Karen Peary's profile. What drives that in her?
1: I'm not entirely sure where it comes from because you don't always know these things. Sometimes these things arrive almost fully formed when you're working with the character. Um, But I suspect that uh, growing up in Scotland, as she did in in working class Scotland, there was still a sense of solidarity where she grew up in Fife. It was was, um, a community that had its roots in, in, in mining and in shipbuilding. And these communities had very strong tradition of of mutual support. Uh, if somebody was out of work uh, or somebody got injured, the community gathered around and did what they could to help. Uh, and I think that's that's a spirit that that has imbued her. And she she has that great um, affinity with with people who have been badly treated by society, if you like. She 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 hates injustice, and she. She particularly has a, a strong urge to give people answers about what has happened to their loved ones. When people go missing or people are murdered, and there's no obvious immediate answer, Karen has a has an urge to put it to put it right, to do what she can to bring the dead home, uh, and that's something that matters to her very much. There's no um in particular backstory element to that. It's not like. Uh, something that happened in her own life that's made her feel this way particularly, but just a general sense of the community she was brought up in and and, and the social spirit that was around when she was growing up.
0: The way you plan, I mean, you've got how many? 30 books uh, over several series, and some of those span 20 years or more. And that suggests that your next book is always on your mind. But I wonder if, is there also some long-range planning? Or do you simply decide on the day, ah, oh, it's time to write a Karen Perry book?
1: It's a kind of mix of both of those things. I mean, this is, this is my 39th novel, and I've never been, I've never known really what the next book was going to be until I was probably two thirds of the way through the one I'm writing. But at the same time, um, I have a sense of mixing it up a bit. I, I realised quite early on in my career, when I started writing full time, that I couldn't write books back to back with the same character. Um, I was, I'd quit the, the day job, I was writing the Kate Brannigan. I'd written the first one, so I dived straight into the second one and I was about two-thirds of the way through it, and I thought, I don't like this woman. You know, she's smarter than me, she's thinner than me, she's funnier than me, she's better at computer games than me. Why am I spending my days with her? Um, and I realised that because I've got a very low boredom threshold, so ever since then I've mixed it up, and I've not written books back-to-back with the same character, uh, with the exception of 1979 and 1989, but uh, although those those books are of the same protagonist, the 10-year gap between them makes me feel like it's not just straight into the next the next day in Ali Burns' life, if you like. It's 10 years down the road. She's learned a lot. She's changed a bit. So that, for me, is is one of the, the, the things. And I never have any sense of, of what the book that I'm writing about, what their central character will do next until I'm towards the end of the book. Then I start to get a glimmering of where I might take them next. But I have to park that and write something else. And then in the back of my mind, uh, in, in the sort of peripheral vision, there's, there's Karen wondering about deciding what she's going to do next or what happens that sets her off down a particular track. So it's a kind of, it's half a mixture of um, prepping for the character's next appearance and, and half just kind of ignoring them and letting them go off and do their own thing while I go off and do my own thing. I know it sounds a bit bonkers, but that's kind of the way it goes. The only way I can explain it. Do
0: some of the characters from the past still haunt you? For example, is Ali Burns too far into the past or history now?
1: No, she's she's next year's book. Next year it'll be nineteen ninety nine. So I'm planning to write a quintet that ends in twenty nineteen, um, and I, because when I'd finished the, the previous Karen Perry Still Life, it was just as COVID was was starting to pick up. We'd just gone into lockdown. And I didn't have any sense of what everyday life was anymore. Like the rest of us, I was I was terrified, I was anxious, I didn't know what was going to happen. Um, and I, I thought, I can't write in this world. Um, so I, I decided to go back in history to when I, I did know what was happening. And I thought that writing this set of books would, would have two effects. One, it would anchor me in a time when I did know what had happened. And the other thing was it would let me use my experience of working in the world of words to... to used my knowledge and experience and, and my anecdotage, if you like, to avoid having to write a memoir. Because I can't think of anything more boring than having to sit and think about myself for two years. got stories I want to tell, and they're, they're not particularly my stories. So it, it was a kind of kill two birds with one stone. And last year I was in New Zealand for four months. I'm, I'm a visiting professor at the University of Otago in Dunedin. And I had uh, rocked up in, in Dunedin intending to spend my time thinking about the next Ali Burns' novel, 1999, and doing some research and reading around that year, uh, doing what I could, like reading books that were published that year and thereabouts, listening to the music from the period. And really, almost no sooner had I got my feet on New Zealand soil, than I had this idea for a Karen Perry novel, and it wouldn't go away. It wouldn't let me back. Yeah, I'll come, I'll get back to you, Karen, I'll get back to you on that. But it just wouldn't go away. And I realised after about a few or three weeks, that the only way I was going to get shut of this was to write the damn thing. And so I, I spent the rest of my time in New Zealand writing it. I got back to the UK, and my editor was like, so when are you starting 1999? I said, well, funny enough, I've actually got something for you. And she was like, what do you mean you've got something for me? You went away in, in September. You've come back with a book I wasn't expecting. I said, yes, but I think it's okay. So on, on we went. Uh, as I say, so so next year, it'll be 1999. But I've also got a little side gig uh, next year as well. There's a, a publishing house in Scotland called Polygon Berlin, and they've got a series, a new series of books called Darkland Tales, which are centred around the idea of reinvestigating, reinventing, reworking, reimagining elements of Scottish history or myth. So Denise Minor wrote uh, a short novella about Rizzio, Mary Queen of Scots, Secretary who was murdered. Uh, Jenny Fagan wrote Hex about the witching trials. Uh, Alan Warner wrote about the escape of Body Prince Charlie. So it's, it's the opportunity to, to take a story from Scottish history and completely reimagine it. Uh, and I'm doing Lady Macbeth, the real Lady Macbeth.
0: The fertile ground in Scottish history for your stories.
1: Oh, yeah, I mean, that's right. We've, we've always been a, a nation of storytellers as well. You know, and that's something that starts off as a, a relatively minor incident, can assume great proportions. Um, and we're also quite used to being traduced by history, if you like. I mean, William Shakespeare's Lady Macbeth is absolutely nothing like the real woman. Um, so I intend to to give her a voice. Given that we don't know very much about 10th century Scotland, of course, I can, I can pretty much have my own way with her.
0: Val McDermott, it's been a pleasure to talk to you and thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast.
1: It's been great fun, thank you.
0: I've been talking to Val McDermott about the next instalment in the Karen Perry series, Past Lying. It's published by Sphere and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. This Good Reading Podcast was brought to you by Book People Gift Cards. Share the joy of reading with a Book People Gift Card. To find out more, visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au